Hello, Ronan here. Welcome to episode two of the Dead Cool Show, where we celebrate the lives of people who passed away around this state over the years. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it, want to change the world, there's nothing to it. Hurry up, pilot. This way, Grandpa. no life I know to compare with pure imagination. Living there, you'll be free if you truly wish to be. So there we go. That was Gene Wilder starting this week's episode. Um, Thanks for listening in last week to the people who did and to the people who've maybe gone back through the archive. Thanks for doing that. Um, 
so we're still finding the format. We is me, um, and I'm still working it. We're still kicking the tires, if you say. But I am very happy with where the vehicle is. <laughs> there was the metaphor I forgot to script. So, 29th of August 2016, the age of 83, uh, Gene Wilder passed away. Probably best known for being Mr. Willy Wonka. Hey, trivia fans, that's one of the main differences between the book and the film. The book was called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And then Gene Wilder apparently wanted to be the starring role. So it became Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, Obviously, well known for loads of kind of classic comedy films, uh, Blazing Saddles, the producers of which he won uh, an Academy Award and Young Frankenstein, he was nominated for uh, writing uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. But one thing I've always particularly liked is the film he actually wrote and directed as his debut called The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. And I'm sure it taps in to a lot of running themes we're going to hear over the years with this podcast, which is uh, brothers getting at each other. A a tale as old as time. Um, So obviously, um, this podcast is celebrating the lives of people who have passed away. And I don't want to define people by their partners. But whenever anyone mentions Gene Wilder, I automatically think of what would be probably his most, we'll say, most famous wife, who was Gilda Radner, um, who's one of my absolute comedy um, heroes, I suppose. And someday we'll do a deep dive on her. But I just noticed that there's a, uh, what would you call it, a theme in today's episode where there's at least four people who died as a result of uh, cancers and two of them have, sorry, they all have done different things for fundraising and stuff, but um, Gene Wilder co-founded a, a group called um, Gilda's Club, which was a support group for people to raise awareness and research of cancer. When people say, this podcast sounds fierce morbid, yeah, we're going to have mortality constantly being uh, tapping at the door, but hopefully we can enjoy the music and hopefully the talking in between will be up to a certain level. But enough of me talking right now. The next song is by Nico, but the reason I am picking it today is because it's one of the few songs that Sterling Morrison, who was the, what we'll say, the second guitarist in the original Velvet Underground, he co-wrote and recorded on, on this. So on the 30th of August, which is today, in 1995, he passed away. Um, and he was obviously probably the most discreet or least fan of publicity of the Vel- the original Velvet Underground. There was a great documentary about the Velvet Underground on Apple 
a few months slash year. What is time anymore? And obviously, Lou Reed and John Cale would be the the you know the the faces of Velvet Underground now. But one thing that always struck me about Sterling Morrison and Lou Reed's playing is there was never really a lead guitarist in the band. Um, like even when I went digging trying to find songs that Sterling Morrison defined in the Velvet Underground, he he was always one bit and Lou Reed was another bit. And I like that dynamic. But it's tough <laughs> to um, find a song to highlight him in this particular capacity. But we're going with Chelsea Girls, which he co-wrote and played on. And following that, we will be having um, a song by Can't Heat called On The Road Again. And I'll talk to you about that then. Here's room five or six It's enough to make you sick Bridget's all wrapped up in foil You wonder if She can uncoil Here they come Magic Margaret, you wonder just how high they go. Run now. Here they 
other trick Her treats and times revolve She's got problems
on the road again. I'm on the road again. But I'm so tired of crying. But I'm out on the road again. I'm on the road again. I ain't got no woman just to call my special friend. You know the first time I traveled out in the rain and snow. In the rain and snow. You know the first time I traveled out in the rain and snow. In the rain and snow. I didn't have no pharaoh, not even no place to go. And my dear mother left me when I was quite young. When I was quite young. And my dear mother left me when I was quite young. When I was quite young. She said, Lord, have mercy on my wicked son. Don't you cry no more, don't you cry no more Take a hint from me, mama, please Don't you cry no more, don't you cry no more Cause it's soon one morning Down the road I'm gone But I ain't going down that Long old lonesome road All by myself But I ain't going down that Long old lonesome road All by myself I can't carry you baby Gonna carry somebody else
Sarah Harding, best known for being in um, Girls Aloud. She passed away two years ago on the 5th of September. And that was her final song. Um, what was it called? Wear It Like a Crown. And that, in fact, all the proceeds of that song st- still go to the uh, Christie NHS Foundation Trust, which is... Uh, geared towards uh, cancer research before that we had On the Road Again by Canned Heat now Canned Heat had quite a long career but um, their what we'll say best known singer wasn't the singer on that song that was sung by Alan Wilson who passed away on the 3rd of September 1970 and he's one of the many members of the 27 Club um, while digging into him the, there's two or three people that we'll be playing today that are credited with sort of the start of movements and this is one in particular where he was one of the first people to be involved with sort of the revival of Delta Blues which leaded, led into kind of blues rock um, I'm aware I cover incredibly minute points and huge points with the same amount of effort sometimes. But I'm hoping that's what this podcast will come to be. It'll be the landing point and the reminding point of lots of things. Uh, I was reflecting on last week's episode and what I'm trying to do with this. And I'm trying to make it... The catch-up on everything I've learnt while researching and everything it's reminded me of. Let's see how that goes. And I suppose you could say that, that that's what everyone wants to do all the time. But uh, John Fahey, who'd be genuinely one of my favourite kind of guitar player, and he mainly one-man instrumental stuff, he referred to Alan Wilson 
um, as one of the most significant influences on my musicianship and that his work should be appreciated for its immortal spellbinding beauty. Now, obviously, there's people of note I want to talk about every week, people who didn't release songs but are of incredible interest. And two that spring out to me, uh, even though there's about 150 years between the two of them, was um, Steve Irwin. You might remember him. The um, ninth, no, sorry, the 4th of September. He was only 44 when he died, um, a year older than me, if you're listening to this in 2023. Um, obviously, he his, his death um, caused a lot of headlines and stuff because he was so such a leadership of trying to bring it wasn't so much climate change or sustainability but a reminder of wildlife and heritage I suppose Uh, but without a doubt if he was still around now he'd be talking a lot about sustainability and stuff the I suppose this is of interest um, that he is believed to be the only person to be captured on video of being a fatality of a stingray, which is how he died. He was pierced in the chest. Um, it's just, I'm always intrigued by people who have only facts. Um, and this also brings us to Mary Ward, who was an Irish woman, uh, died in 1869. She as of the time, didn't have much opportunity in society. She was largely homeschooled as a teenager uh, because of being a female. Um, wasn't, yeah, I'm not even going to make a throwaway joke about that, but she's incredibly self-educated. Um, she was one of only three women on the mailing list of the Royal Astronomical Society. Um, she would be considered... An astronomer, <laughs> astronomer, astronomer, illustrator, and a naturalist is sort of a triple threat. And I found this brilliant book that she printed um, called Sketches with the Microscope, which the Awfully um, History blog, sorry, no, that's the website that told me about it, the Awfully History Society uh, brought out a sort of a full-colour facsimile of the original publication um, in August 2019, so three years ago. And on my socials, I'll put up a link to it. I'm going to be ordering it and I will be getting it for Christmas for myself because it looks brilliant. And also, she was the first person known to be killed by a motor vehicle. So... Always a first. Hey, yo, lesson here, babe. You come at the king, you best not miss. Now, here's a young lady half of America has spent the night with while hosting the Tonight Show. A very funny lady and dear friend, Miss Joan Rivers. 
Do you like the, do you like the boots? The truth. They were given to me by a Nazi hairdresser, <laughs> Mr. Heidi. And um, he, uh, I, this whole thing is very strange. This is the new length, which I, I think the men are happy because it went up. But I miss the midi, don't you? Nothing. No, no. For a woman that worked, it was great because you only had to shave up to here. It was very convenient. <laughs> the men hated it because the first time I bought me, I bought me a midi coat. And my husband went crazy. And he was screaming, why the midi coat? Why the midi coat? So I figured... Give me an excuse, right? I said to hide my ugly legs. He went out, he bought me a midi hat. But, um, <laughs> this, this is knickers, by the way. I don't know if you, if you noticed that. Yeah, that, that, oh, don't bother. No, that's, <laughs> these are hot pants for ladies that have cooled off. <laughs> I, I was going to wear hot pants because I had them on and I said to the sales lady, what do you think? And she says, great. She said, your veins look just like fringe. But, um, <laughs> You should not wear certain things, right? I'm, I'm starting to get so old. Oh! I shouldn't have mentioned. My kid called me grandma today. Do you know how that hurts? That's a, last night I was getting undressed. Once I about getting old, a peeping Tom looked in the window, took a look, pulled down the shade. <laughs> you know when you're getting old when you're a woman? When you get up in the morning with no makeup, you go in the bathroom and look in the medicine chest mirror. Frightening? Frightening? I got up this morning. I went in that bathroom. I looked in the medicine chest mirror. I went, no! No! Then I realized the medicine chest door was open. I still try, but see, my husband doesn't care. Because men like young women, right? Doesn't, doesn't that kill you? No, sure, animal. No. I said to my husband, Edgar, I said, women are like wine. The older we become, the better we become. Lock me in the cellar. <laughs> I, 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 you know what he always says? He always says, why can't you look like you looked when we first got married, right? Because I'm not pregnant. But I'm... <laughs> oh, no. my, wedding night was, my wedding night was a disaster. I came out of that bathroom. He took, he took one look at me, called Ralph Nader. The man just... Because uh, things change, Right? You're married, isn't it true? Yeah, how long are you married? 14 years. 14 years, exactly. See, see, no, in the beginning, it's great. Beginning, you wear a little black nightgown, a little perfume. Remember those days? You run around, you play games. Catch me, catch me. Catch me. <laughs> I'm married six years. We, we still play catch me, catch me, but we walk. The attitude is... <laughs> Dress up. I would dress up more. My, my, you want to hear a story? My husband doesn't. We were married four weeks. Four weeks. My husband came to the dinner table in his undershirt. You're shocked, aren't you? I said to him, Oh no. Oh no, no, no. Go back and put on shorts. <laughs> For mothers, what's the matter with you? So there we had the marvellous Joan Rivers. I don't know if you had the pleasure of watching the marvellous Miss Maisel on um, Amazon Prime. Yeah, 
uh, it was a great watch over the last few seasons and obviously leaned quite heavily into the reality of Joan Rivers. Um, she was once called quite possibly the most intuitively funny woman alive. Unfortunately, she isn't anymore, but she was a powerhouse. That clip I played for you there was from the late 60s and she was the first woman to have her own late night talk show and that was in 1986 um, the, the reference we heard there from what was his name Flip Wilson was because she was filling in for um, Johnny Carson I'm going to say it was Johnny Carson and if I get it wrong sue me so many decades she worked um, and just brilliant comedian. If you like the sound of her, there's loads of YouTube stuff and you've probably heard of her, to be fair. And before that was a clip of Michael K. Williams, who passed away two years ago as the legendary Omar in The Wire. Also well known for being chalky white in uh, Boardwalk Empire. I knew vaguely that he did stuff before acting and it was dancing but I didn't realise he was also like a choreographer in pop music videos and he appeared with um, George Michael, Madonna and I did read that he was in a Missy Elliott video but I couldn't spot him. Obviously one of his um, signature features was uh, he only got uh, I think in 95 so some of his work was done before that and probably his breakout thing was in, in 1996 with another uh, member of the dead cool crew which was Tupac in the film Bullet now Joan Rivers would be no stranger to the stage and I want to talk a little about the stage in Ireland and we're getting all the way back to 1676 when John Ogilby passed away. Ogilby, sorry, I don't know where that uh, additional vowel just went in there. And he was many things, but one of them was the first person, sorry, well, he was the person who established the first theatre in Ireland in Werberg Street, and it was known as the Werberg Street Theatre. So he spent a lot of time on the name. Uh, the funny is the wrong word, but in uh, 1937, sorry, which is when he established it, um, he was established the Master of Revels for Cork. And, well, sorry, for Ireland, but obviously it, Cork had nothing to do with it. Sorry, just in Dublin. Just whenever I say Dublin, Cork comes up in this um, for the sake of balance. But there was a guy who was the Lord Deputy of Ireland uh, called Wentworth, and he apparently established a strong authoritarian rule. So if you can imagine somebody like that in Ireland, and spoiler alert, there's someone worse than him going to be referred to later. But getting back to this guy... Um, Ogilby, he opened the first theatre 
and the first play to be performed that was written by an Irish writer was uh, Henry Burnell's Landgarta, and it's considered to be the earliest published play by an Irish author. And that was in 1640, Fact Fans, and opened on St. Patrick's Day. And then, but he's probably best known for publishing the very first British road atlas. Uh, But he was also a successful translator, and he was known for publishing his work uh, in really, like, illustrated editions, which I assume uh, added to the value. I don't know if... He was just showing off how fancy he was. But speaking of translators and the stage, he said, typing in, we also are celebrating the anniversary uh, 10 years ago of Seamus Heaney leaving this realm. And he was a much more successful writer, playwright and translator. So obviously he won the Nobel Prize in 1995 in 2013, in his obituary, he was called probably the best-known poet in the world by The Independent. And we're now going to hear a poem read by him from uh, Death of a Naturalist, and it's called Digging. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground, my father digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up twenty years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep, to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mould, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head. But I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. I'm walking the floor over you I can't sleep a wink, that is true I'm hoping and I'm praying as my heart breaks right in two Walking the floor over you You left me and you went away you said that you'd be back in just a day You've broken your promise and you left me here alone I don't know why you did, dear, but I do know that you're gone I'm walking the floor over you 
I can't sleep a wink, that is true I'm hoping and I'm praying as my heart breaks right in two Walking the floor over you Oh, Billy Bird now You too, buddy Someday you may be lonesome too Walking the floor is good for you Just keep right on walking and it won't hurt you to cry Remember that I loved you and I will the day I die I'm walking the floor over you I can't sleep a wink, that is true I'm hoping and I'm praying as my heart breaks right in two Walking the floor over you
Okay, we've had uh, plenty there. So, after Seamus Heaney, we had Ernest Tubb, who died in 1984. And he first mentioned a Christmas, and not the only one today. He was the first singer to actually record Blue Christmas and have a hit with it. And probably to country music ears, he would be best known for being a, at first a regular of the Grand Ole Opry and then starting a radio show afterwards called The Midnight Jamboree that used to be on after the Opry on Saturday nights. And he would be one of the people who would be sort of credited with the rise of the honky-tonk country, um, a song style that is one of the most easily parodied kind of styles and obviously there's been a lot of mediocre versions of it but there's been some brilliant stuff as well and obviously slight guitar would have come to the fore with that but I wanted to try and get one there that didn't have as much slight guitar just so that we could focus on his um, voice and he also appeared himself as himself in the brilliant Coal Miner's Daughter film, which is the autobiography of Loretta Lynn, um, which and that was in 1980, the year I was born, just to give myself a connection to it. And before that, sorry, just after that, we had, I'm sure some of you were thinking, that sounded a bit like a Creedence Clearwater Revival. He's not dead. Um, but his brother is. And that was Tom Fogarty, who was one of the original members of um, CCR, but he didn't last long in the band. You can dig into it yourselves, but basically didn't get on well with his brother. When have you heard that before? But, like, you know, they weren't bitter rivals. They did have reunions and performed together over the years. I read, including at his wedding, and then for the final time, at a school reunion, which brought a smile to my face anyway, and that was called Joyful Resurrection. Uh, a wit lower hanging fruit than mine would possibly make a joke about resurrections at a dead cool show, but not I. So we've two other people, three other people I want to mention now, all to do with the film world. And uh, Anita Page, 2008, on the 6th of September, passed away. And she was once called the girl with the most beautiful face in Hollywood. So look that up. Uh, I'm not great at describing things at the best of time. And I'm not calling her face a thing, but I just did there. But I didn't mean to. Um, she was in a lot of films in the 20s. And then I noticed she made one film about 30 years later and then another film about 30 years later. So she had a 60-year hiatus. Uh, I don't know uh, what, what happened there, but she did star in a film called um, The Broadway Melody and that was the first film with sound to win the Best Picture Academy Award. And I read she also received several magic magic <laughs> marriage proposals from Benito Mussolini. Uh, so, fair play to anyone who didn't marry Mussolini. Um, 
then somebody who's possibly better known would be Ingrid Bergman, who died in 1982 on the 29th of August. She was 67. Um, she acted in five different languages, Swedish, English, German, Italian and French. And only Catherine Hepburn has more Oscars than her. Catherine Hepburn has four and Ingrid Bergman has three. And she says that with a few people. Um, I, what is it? Anastasia, Murder in the Orient Express. Um, and there's actually 30 years between her last Oscar winner, 1974, Murder in the Orient Express. And then a film I want to feature right now. She won the Best Actress Oscar and a Golden Globe in 1944, film called Gaslight. And if you're a fan of listening, you will have heard that term a lot more and more recently. Obviously something we need to completely stamp out. But the, the, the concept of gaslighting, it comes from this film. Spoiler alert, I'm playing a bit at the end, but it's about uh, a woman being gaslit. So here's a clip from it now. There's no knife here. Yes, I put it there. Look, I don't see any knife. I put it there tonight. No, it isn't here. You must have dreamed you put it there. Are you suggesting that this is a knife I hold in my hand? Have you gone mad, my husband? Or is it I who am mad? Yes, of course, that's it. I am mad. I'm always losing things and hiding things, and I can never find them. I don't know where I put them. That was a knife, wasn't it? And I have lost it. I must look for it, mustn't I? If I don't find it, you'll put me in the madhouse. Where could it be now? Perhaps it's behind this picture. Yes, it must be here. No. No, where shall I look now? Perhaps I put it over here. Yes, I must have done that. My brooch. The brooch I lost at the tower. I found it at last, you see, but it doesn't help you, does it? And I'm trying to help you, aren't I? Trying to help you to escape. How can a mad woman help her husband to escape? But you're not mad. Yes, I am mad, as my mother was mad. No, Paula. That wasn't true. Help me. If I were not mad, I could have helped you. Whatever you had done, I could have pitied and protected you. But because I am mad, I hate you. Because I am mad, I have betrayed you, and because I am mad, I'm rejoicing in my heart without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret, watching you go with glory in my heart. Mr. Cameron, come! Come, Mr. Cameron, take this man away! Take this man away! So there we go. That was uh, Ingrid Bergman in uh, Gaslight, and as a little bit of sideway trivia, and uh, that was the film Angela Lansbury made her film debut in. And one last bit of cinema I want to talk about is Edward Gwen, who passed away in 1959 on the 6th of September. And he was in several Hitchcock films. He Hitchcock? Hitchcock films. He was in Cheers Boy Cheer, which is uh, credited with being the first um, like fully fledged or authentic Ealing comedy 
and that came out in 1939. A lot of things happened in 1939 that were overshadowed by the big thing that happened in 1939. But he's probably best known for being Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street, the original version of it. Uh, So there we go. That's the second (laughs) mention of Christmas so far. And I'm aware that this show is already longer than I intended it to be because it's a, you know, it's a thing I've made up myself. So I don't know why I'm saying it's too long, but I'm, I really want to get it to be about 45 minutes long. And we've completely overshot the moon on that one. And I'll get better. So I was going to do a real deep dive onto a guy called John Lumsden. But what I think I'll start doing is doing like a side podcast, no music maybe or something. But John Lumsden is a someone I'd never heard of. That's turned out to be a very interesting guy. So I'll talk about him. Watch out for that or just Google him. L-U-M-S-D-E-N. Now, I did refer to somebody and I said, there's somebody worse that I could refer to. So... This is the dead beep, um, if you can think of another four-letter word, that died around this week, which is in 1658. Oliver Cromwell died. Way. Um So I want to play some more music now. You're going to recognize the song's kind of opening lyrics it's, uh, from a classic party song. Uh, it's called Disco Devil, and I'll speak more about him later, but take it away, Lee Scratch Perry. Bye! 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 Lucifer, son of the morning, I'm gonna chase you out of Fine, 
So there we go. That was the seven-inch version of Disco Devil by Lee Scratch Perry. There is a much longer version of it that I chose not to use for, you know, the sake of time. Um, because it was Lee Scratch Perry, so there was a much longer dub version of it. So he'd be a very influential and innovative record producer slash composer slash singer from Jamaica and he was really at the forefront of developing dub music in the 1970s um, which is like using loads of effects to remix like existing tracks or creating instrumental versions of it and then people would then play them at dance halls and uh, MC over them and stuff um, and his death day was the 29th of August there and I currently have a weekly gig in the Pavilion on in Cork and it was a delight somebody asked for some Lee Scratch Perry on Monday night as it turned into Tuesday and they weren't aware that Tuesday was his death day so I put a lot of thought into these things and occasionally I get to be able to pull that information out of the pocket so it makes it look like I know the death day of absolutely everybody I don't uh, we are now going to play two songs that I'm not making fun of, but I love music across the board, and I love laughing where you can. So this is a, an American-born uh, Filipino singer. I really admire him as, a, as I read him, read about him, his career. I like people who turned to teaching during their careers when you go we just did this as well as opposed to the dramatic he did this or she did this and then they stopped and they did this he seemed to think education and educating is a good thing to do while doing other stuff and I would concur but this is a song called Don't Know What To Say now it's lovely it's got incredibly romantic lyrics which I'm always a sucker for, and I'm trying to remember it. There's one about halfway through. I'm on a one-way street, and I'm the only one here. Oh, love that kind of stuff. But what I'm loving about the song in particular is if you listen to the... Okay, not, not the chords that drive the song, but we'll say the additional music that's played on it. I kind of feel that the people who are playing it were also auditioning to be writing incidental music in 80s sitcoms and drama series. So just have a little listen to it. It just, there's um, the hue of like Perfect Strangers and Golden Girls and uh, what else? Um, Highway to Heaven. There we go. Second mention of Highway to Heaven. Let's see, can I mention it every week? But anyway, that's called Don't Know What to Say. And that will be followed by uh, Max Bygraves, who died in uh, 2012. He was 89. Like, he was a entertainment behemoth. Um, I'll tell you a little fact about him after this. But this is called um, Crazy Music. And I'm also a sucker for any song that just keeps mentioning the instruments that are being played. Uh, hat tip to Max Bygraves. Thank you. 
trombone when i hold you near it seems i always hear crazy music a pling a pling a pling goes the mandolin a zing a zing a zing goes the violin every time we touch i tell you it's too much crazy music Toscanini never knocked me out like this i like brahms and liszt But baby, when you kiss me, a boom, boom, boom goes the big bass drum. A zoom, a zoom, a zoom, hear the banjo strum. Won't you say it's true that you can hear it too? Crazy music. Crazy music. 
never knock me out like this Oh, I like Brahms and Liz But baby, when you kiss me Goes the big bass drum I hear the banjo strum Won't you say it's true that you can hear it too Crazy music That's the Sid Phillips violin That's the Sid Phillips trombone Oh, and guess who this is? Beacon! Mutiny amongst the musicians. Don't you understand, fellas, that if you practice hard, one day you'll be with the Alley Orchestra. And there's Lolly in the Alley. Barbarolly Lolly. Crazy music. Crazy music. There we go. That was Max Bygrave's Crazy Music. And I just read that in um, 1959, he bought the rights to the musical Oliver for £350 off um, Lionel Bart. And then he sold them for £250,000 uh, a while later. So fair play, crazy money as well as crazy music. Uh, so, somebody in the music world, I remember reading this man's name several times in several biographies, and I never, so not just biographies, liner notes, when I was young and at the time, uh, or just didn't have the distraction, and his name is Tom Wilson. So, he, th- the first time I would have heard his name would have been in uh, the Bob Dylan records of the times they are changing another side of Bob Dylan and bringing it all back home. So that alone, like, that's the top table of people who've made important things. So he was called the, or well, he's been referred to as the midwife of folk rock. Um, so like, he was the producer of this record. So he's the guy who famously worked out, like putting pianos and drum kits around the studio stopped Bob Dylan from moving. So that created the sound, or well, created the consistency of recording that so many people have replicated and they're still replicating. He's the guy who was pressing the red button for Like a Rolling Stone. I'm aware he probably had an engineer who literally pressed the red button, but he was the guy who decided who was in the room, which is an important guy to know. Uh, he had previously set up transition records and like they were the first people to release a record by Sun Ra. He was the producer of Simon and Garfunkel's first album, uh, Wednesday morning, 3am. He's also the real producer of the first Velvet Underground uh, album, the one with the banana on the cover because I know Andy Warhol is credited as the producer but as was in modern parlance he'd have been like the executive producer or creative producer but John Cale says Wilson was the guy in the room all the time Uh, and like just those five or six records alone are just that's enough of a starting record collection in one swoop and he was the first person to p- 
produce Frank Zappa on the Mother's Invention record, uh, Freak Out. But what I want to play to you is like a quadruple dead cool connection song. And it's um, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem with recorded live in Ireland because this was the very first live album to be recorded in Ireland. Now, obviously, there's been archival tapes that have been found of, like, sessions and song finding and stuff, but in the sense of someone setting up a concert to record it for release. And guess who was the producer of it? Our friend Tom Wilson. And the thing is, we're ahead of the curve, guys, because uh, there's a documentary series about Tom Wilson and all of his life that has been um, slated um, you can look it up in Variety and so I don't know when that's out but when it comes out you'll be like oh I know all about him because of that dead cool guy but this is a song that was written about Brendan Behan whose birthday is this year well it would be it would have been his hundredth sorry to be more specific uh, so it's called Lament for Brendan Behan so I'm going to play that with the intro from the live album and then this is the last you're going to hear from me afterwards the final song is this guy called Randy Weston he died uh, age 92 but I had never heard of him I, well never knowingly heard of him I'm sure I've heard him on the radio, like, you know, um, I'll assume John Kelly has played him or something. But he he's blown my mind. I've been listening to loads of his stuff all week. He was a jazz band leader, leader composer, um, musician in his own right, incredible piano player. Um, so many pieces of music that were just too long for the podcast, says the man talking too much. But... So I'm going to play a relatively short song from, which I think is the opening track from African Cookbook, which is one of his signature albums. But I would actually urge you to listen to the, this 12-minute song that I've been uh, completely nerding out on called, where did I put it? Um, oh, it, it's the title track, African Cookbook. That was, that's on my uh, recommended listening list. But I've also read about his autobiography, which is also on my book list to read. And there was, uh, let's see, this writer called uh, Larry Thomas. Um, Randy Weston's long-anticipated, much-talked-about, consciousness-raising, African-centred autobiography, African Rhythms, is a serious breath of fresh air and a much-needed antidote in this world of mediocre musicians and men. Which I just love. That that really sets the, uh, the bar out for the book. And just in general, Randy Weston was referred to as Africa's, sorry, America's African musical ambassador, which that's good enough for me. So we're going to have The Lament for Brendan Behan, and then that will be followed by Berkshire Blues. Thanks for listening to me at Dead Cool, and see you next week when I'll probably be better at mentioning Patreons and hashtags and all that kind of stuff. I was in Chicago a while back. I was in a little folk song club there. 
And a young Jewish lad came up to me and asked me if I ever knew Brendan Bean. I said I did. I had a few good nights singing with him and so on. And he said, you know, I never met him, but I had such a strong feeling about him, he said, that I had to, to write this song. I wonder if you'd sing it when you go back to Dublin. And he sang it for me in a corner, and he called it The Lament for Brendan Bean. And I'll sing it for you now. Word has come from Dublin City. Word has come to our town. Word has come from Dublin City. They tell me bold Brendan is dead. Born in 23 in a slum in Dublin with a tenement over his head. Born with a spirit his flesh could not contain. They tell me poor Brendan is dead. He died at the Meath in far off Dublin in a cold white hospital bed. In the Georgian tenements the children hush their singing. They know that poor Brendan is dead. No stranger to life, he lived right enough. No stranger to the glass in his hand. No stranger to the cause, he fought all his life. Yet they tell me poor Brendan is dead. Ireland has lost her sweet angry singer. No longer his poems of fine design will ring out in Gaelic our sound